Let's pray together. Well, Lord, first I would echo my brother Chad's thanks for the change in law regarding the unborn. It was the, the same year that you saved me as the year that our nation uh, received that terrible decision regarding uh, that is called Roe versus Wade that made abortion legal in all 50 states through all pregnancy and many even are wanting to apply it even beyond. Uh, and Father, thank you for the change in law, but it has revealed how unchanged many hearts are. And so I certainly join my voice with Chad's to pray for conversion, for uh, as people are stripped bare, how they stand before you, that uh, people will be turned to you and hear the gospel, see their need of Christ and turn to him. Also echo his prayer of thanks for those who uh, keep the laws. And as we see more and more riots, all the more we need those will turn them back and those who face our enemies, uh, Daniel, uh, possibly abroad, Rodney at home, we think also of Victoria, and pray for your hand of mercy on her. Thank you for them. Now as we turn to today's sermon, Heavenly Father, as Scripture says, with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. We come to you now, our life, that we may see by your light. Open our eyes, we pray, that we may see wonderful things out of your law and move on us and in us by your Spirit that we might be transformed by what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we just read, when we receive the Word of God as it truly is, the Word of God, it changes the way we look at things. We see things as we would not have seen them apart from God's Word. Uh, we can think of that in some very uh, signal examples. For instance, you never would have thought, looking at a dried-up old geezer from Ur of the Chaldeans with an infertile wife, you would never have looked at that old man and thought, he is going to be the father of a multitude, like the stars of heavens, the fathers of a, father of a mighty, mighty nation. In fact, uh, through him will come the seed in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. You never would have thought it, but the Word of God shows that truth. Uh, you never would have looked at an 80-year-old refugee from Egypt uh, on, uh, on the run for a murder and thought that he was the man that God would raise up and use to deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt and found the people of God in their own land and write the first five books of the Bible. You just never would have thought it. Uh, and walking by that uh, uh, extra room, you would never have looked at that feeding trough and seen that infant squalling there and thought, that is God the Son taking on human nature for us and our salvation. You just never would have thought it. The Word of God shows us things we wouldn't see with our naked eyes. And so, likewise, nobody would look at Christians on the earth. Nobody would look at the Christian church. No one would look at this church. No one would look at any of the individuals in this church and think, ah, yes, there are people who will overcome the world. But the Word of God shows us what we wouldn't otherwise see. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, Paul tells us, God has chosen the foolish things of the world here to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen and the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. 
1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. And again, our theme verse sort of for this series, 1 John 5, 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who, though foolish, though weak, though base, though despised, though a non-entity in the eyes of the world, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The Word of God shows us that truth. We've been studying the stance of an overcomer for a a few weeks now, and we've seen in uh, the past weeks, first, that the stance of an overcomer is one uh, of a person seeking, seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, as Colossians 3 says. Seeking with a focused mind, seeking with a forward motion, pressing ahead, growing and deepening, maturing, and seeking with a fervent spirit, uh, zealous, serving the Lord. And then last week we saw the stance of a overcomer, an overcomer, is of one standing in the midst of a battle. As Ephesians 6 reveals, we're in the midst of a battle, a great war. And uh, we have a goal to stand firm, and we have great dangers motivating us not to want to fall. And we have an outcome that is settled by Jesus. It is assured, it's glorious, and it's on the way. Amen? And so with that in mind, let's look third at what our stance is, the last and third. Yes, this is the plan, the last and third aspect, the overcomer's stance is one of spreading the Word of God. Spreading. Roman numeral three. Spreading the Word of God. So, in seeing what that's about, let's first look at the mandate we have to spread the Word of God. And that's in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We have a mandate. It's not something that was decided by a human committee or come up or evolved uh, sociologically or, or through the cascade of church history, we have a mandate from Christ himself. In fact, turn there if you would, Matthew 28, and just look at the words with me. The last words in the last chapter of the first gospel. Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus meets with his apostles, and in his first words we find the basis for the mandate he's about to give. The basis in verse 18, number one in your outline. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given. Now, he's not speaking just of something that's an eternal grant, but something that is granted to him, given to him, as the resurrected servant of the Lord, as one who has submitted himself to the Father's will and taking on human nature in fulfilling the law of God and in submitting himself to death for the sake of his elect, bearing their sins on his body, on the cross. This was the Father's will. This is his prayer, not my will, but thine be done. This is why he humbled himself to fulfill this will to the point of death on the cross. And it was the Father's promise that as a reward for his fulfilling the Father's will, he would receive, among other things, all authority in heaven and on earth. So this is very important. This is, I'm not just filling time. We need to get this. That the authority Jesus has is His, and it's granted by the Father on the basis of what He's already done. It's not something He's fighting to gain. It's not something He's hoping to gain. It's not something we're going to help Him gain. Thank God for that. It's something that has already been given Him as a consequence of what He's done. So, it's all on Him, and it's always true. 
It was true from that day when the number of believers in Christ could have been numbered in the just the, what, double digits, triple digits maybe, at the tops at that time. Uh, it was true at that moment that he possessed all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's always true, irrespective of our internal feelings or external circumstances. It's true if the Republicans are in office or if the Democrats are in office or nobody's in office. It's true uh, whether we feel moved to believe it or whether we don't feel moved or and are depressed and downcast. It's always true because it rests on Jesus on the basis of what he's done and what the Father promised him and granted him. This is very important to keep in mind for what follows. The basis for this mandate is all on God the Father, all on God the Son, revealed to us by God the Spirit. That's the basis. Secondly, what is the business of this mandate? The business of this mandate, what we're to be about, what we have a mandate to do is given in verses 19 and 20. Go therefore, do you see the importance of the therefore there? That I go to the nations, believers go to the nations and do what we're about to read in a second, because Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now how much real estate does that cover? Well, where is their earth? <laughs> because everywhere there's earth and everywhere there's heaven, Jesus has all authority. So, therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is what overcomers are given a mandate to do. This is what Jesus wants us to do. This is what we're called to do. Regarding the world, we're not called to make friends with the world. We're called to make disciples of the world. That's very important. We're not called to make them like us. We're called to call them to Jesus. We're not called to be admired by them or even to be desired by them. Because what is the call of discipleship? What's the first part of the call to discipleship? Deny yourself. Well, that is just the opposite of the world's theme song. I did it my way is the world's theme song. And our first word to them is deny yourself, pick up your cross by which you die to yourself in the world, and follow Jesus. It's arsenic to the world's viewpoint. So no, we're not out to make friends. We're out to make disciples. That's our mandate. So the mark of an overcoming ministry then is not a building with a large number of people in it. It's not a building with a number of large people in it. It's a, an assembly with a large percentage of, the, of disciples in it. Not a large building with a lot of people but an assembly with a lot of disciples, a large percentage of disciples. So let me put it another way. It doesn't matter how many people, it doesn't matter primarily how many people are in the room. It matters how many people in the room are disciples. That's the world's, that's the church's mandate from the Lord Jesus. So I, I want to note one more thing before we move on from the business of this mandate the one thing that Jesus tells overcomers to do is the one thing the world doesn't want us to do. The one thing he tells us to do is the one thing that is antithetical to them. They don't want to hear the word of God. They thought they settled this in Genesis 3. The whole point of the world is to have a, space, a safe space from God where I can follow my heart and my will be done on earth 
uh, as it, uh, let's see. Actually, I want my will to be done in heaven as on earth. I want God subservient to me. That's the world. And here comes the Christian with uh, the death knell to that message. So the one thing that Jesus tells overcomers to do is the one thing the world doesn't want us to do. Look, the world is, is fine if we want to turn ourselves in, into an ATM and give money away to the needy. If we want to build soup kitchens and make houses. The world's fine with us making soup kitchens and houses. It just doesn't want us making disciples. And that's the one thing we're called to do by the Word of God, to make disciples. So then, having looked at its business, let's look at its boundaries. We've seen its basis. Jesus has all authority. We've seen its business, making disciples by teaching the words of Jesus. Thirdly, its boundaries. Well, I want to slice this into two aspects. First, what about our geographical Boundaries. Where, where are the borders within which we are allowed to do this? The world is more or less okay with us doing it, it in the privacy of our rooms or our meetings, but it's getting more and more bothered by us even doing it there. So according to Jesus, then, what are our boundaries? Well, wherever heaven and earth are, that's the boundaries. So you're going to draw that map. It's just everywhere where there's heaven and earth. That's where Jesus calls us to go, where there are nations. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, said very well, very memorably, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, all authority in heaven and on earth. So in geography, it's everywhere. That's our boundaries. In terms of time, what's the boundary? Well, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, in verse 20. So Jesus promises his presence. The age one day will be consummated. He has gone away. He sits at the right hand of the Father. One day he will return. So within those brackets the brackets of his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the bracket of his return to rule and reign, this is our time to be making disciples. And that's all we're called to do in that time, and that's exactly what we're called to do in that time. And the trouble of the church all along has been mission creep. Well, yes, we want to do that, but then it's, this is a good work too, and so is this, and so is this, and pretty soon it's this, 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 and the original mission is over here. But here's what we're doing. So the Word of God calls us back. During the time when Jesus is at the Father's right hand, it's our job to make disciples. We see fads come and go. We see trends come and go. We see spiritual revivals come and go. But Christ's promise, His mandate, His presence endure without change through that entire period. And that's true today as it was when He spoke it. So the mandate is to disciple all nations on the basis of His authority. The business of discipling the nations, the boundaries everywhere. All nations, He says. But what are the means of doing that then? How do I, how do, I do that? Do I pick up a a spear and a sword like in the Crusades? Well, not according to the Word of God, I sure don't. Let's look at the means, capital letter B. And generally, the means are laid out in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, For though we war in the flesh, though we walk in the flesh, pardon me, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. As we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Perhaps I should have asked you to turn there because I do want to talk about those words a bit. He says we walk in the flesh, but we don't use fleshly means. We don't use fleshly tools in this warfare. Our weapons, he says, are divinely powerful. Literally, the Greek says powerful to God or powerful by God. Uh, They're weapons he regards as powerful or weapons he makes powerful. Both those things are true. Weapons for what? For tearing down bricks and and concrete and, and iron? No. They're powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. And what kind of strongholds? He identifies them. Speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Every thought that is disobedient to Christ. So this is where we went astray is where the weapons of our warfare aim. The thought life, the beliefs, the heart of man. That's what these weapons address. They're not bombs, they're not spears, they're not guns, they're words, they're truths. You see how well this goes with what Jesus said in Matthew 28, right? Make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing and teaching them all that I commanded you teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And so Paul echoes that, saying it's God's word. That is our powerful hammer that crushes the rock of stubborn rebellion against God. Now, this calls to mind an irony, really, when you stop and think about it. We only do the world good when we're the most unlike the world. (laughs) In fact, we only do the world good by being unlike the world. And and many Christians think that today, obviously, think that their way to witness is to tell the world, you go, you know, I'm with you. Jesus gets you. You're fine wherever you are, however you are, whatever you are. Don't change a thing. You're just dandy. Where is that? (laughs) Nowhere. It's exactly not what we're called. We're given weapons, not not cushy pillows and comforters and, and, and feather dusters. We're given weapons because they destroy what the world believes and is counting on and relying on. Uh, so we only do the world good when we're unlike it, when we tell it what it doesn't want to hear. When we tell the world what it wants to hear, uh, we damn it. And Spurgeon imagines the souls of the lost in hell when a preacher of a false gospel joins them, he imagines those souls crying out to him and saying, you lied to us. You lied to us. Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us all was well and that all would be well? Horrible scene. It's not our call. We do the world the most good when we are least like the world and tell it what it doesn't want to hear but needs to hear. So generally our weapons are uh, these divinely given weapons. And specifically, number two, it's the gospel. Romans 1, 14 through 16. Specifically, it's the gospel. Now, see how Paul sees this. Romans 1, 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He regarded it as his responsibility to tell this gospel to the lost. I'm under obligation. The literal Greek word is, I'm a debtor. I owe it to them to do that. That's Paul's perspective. 
In verse 15, in this way, for my part, I'm eager to proclaim the gospel to you who are in Rome. Well, why? Are you nuts? (laughs) That's the last place you should want next to Jerusalem, and he's done both. Uh, You shouldn't want to say it in Rome. Rome doesn't want to hear this gospel. But he says he's not just willing. He's not just gonna. He's eager to do it. Why is he eager to do it? Well, there's a four here in verse 16 that answers that question. The first four is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So that's the first reason he's uh, eager to proclaim the gospel in Rome. And here's something where a, a, a Christian should stop for a conscience check. Could we write that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It doesn't embarrass me to tell people that I believe in Jesus. It doesn't embarrass me to tell people I trust God's word just like Jesus did, that I follow him in faith in God's word. It doesn't embarrass me to tell people that I stake everything on Jesus. Everything leans on him. Everything relies on him for me. It doesn't embarrass me. In fact, I'm eager to tell people that. Could, could, could you say that? Paul says that. Why does he say that? Because he's formulated it so pretty? Because it's so winsome and lovely? Because it's such great literature? No. The next four. For I'm not ashamed. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, it's just like what we read in 2 Corinthians 10. It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. No, well, not the skill with which I tell the gospel, but the gospel is the power of God. In a meeting once, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon was there with his grandfather. His grandfather was preaching. Spurgeon was a listener. And his grandfather said, uh, Charlie may preach the gospel better than I do, but he doesn't preach a better gospel than I do. Right, Charlie? And Charlie said, right, <laughs> right. It's the gospel that saves, not the eloquence of the preacher. Not his great arguments. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, all nations. So this is the specific part of the gospel, of the word of God, I should say, that the world needs to hear because this is its entry point. This is how it turns from being enemies of God to being children of God. The gospel. The gospel tells them what they most need to know. It's not inspirational pep talks. It's not how-tos. It's not how to have a happy marriage. It's the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the power of God to salvation. Because only that gospel tilts the world on its head. Only that is God's means of reconciling sinners to Himself. And only by the gospel are citizens of God's kingdom transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the king of God's dear Son. The gospel, the power of God, specifically is the means. Comprehensively, number three, Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12, comprehensively. So we've seen it generally, specifically, and now comprehensively. He says of the Word of God as the Word of God, he says this, the writer to the Hebrews, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Anything that is the Word of God has this power. All of God's Word has this character. Only God's Word has this character. Traditions about God's Word doesn't. Statements of faith about God's Word. Our feelings about God's Word don't. 
God's word has this power. And so, only God's word can powerfully tear down these strongholds that are erected against the knowledge of Christ. And only God's word can bring salvation to a lost sinner because it's living and it's powerful. All of God's word is that way. So, the only means to fulfill our mandate and to overcome for the glory of God is the word of God. Listen, friend, Satan is perfectly happy for us to do anything else. He is perfectly happy for us to be a church and be a bunch of nice little religious people. That is ote with him. Anything else except preach the word of God. That's the one thing. Why? Because that's the sword. Because that's the weapon that tears down his whole structure. The word of God does that. The only weapon that undoes his lies and his deception is the word of God. That's God's mandate to us. It's the thing the world doesn't want. It's the thing the world most needs and the lost people in it. Because remember I said right at the outset, our enemy is not worldlings. Our enemy is the world system. And worldlings are pawns and slaves to it. So we're sent to them with the freeing gospel of God. It's God's power to salvation. It's living, active, and sharp. It can sever the chains by which they're enslaved, but only it. So that's the mandate. That's the means. And now uh, let's talk about the methods. How do we do this? How do we do this? Well, you expect it to be very, very complicated, right? Actually, it's not very, very complicated. Most basically, the method is stated thus. Three simple words. Let me state the method. What do we do with the Word of God? Three words. You say it. There it is. You say it. That's the three words. Turn to Proverbs with me. Right around the middle of your Bible, unless you've got a defective Bible. Proverbs, and we're going to look first at chapter 10 and verse 11. Just the first line. Proverbs 10, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And then the second part is, but the mouth of the wicked covers up violence. But we'll focus on line A. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. So he has something that bubbles up life for others. The righteous man. Who's the righteous man? The man who's right with God. How do you get right with God? Genesis 15, 6 tells us, Then Abram believed Yahweh, and Yahweh counted it to him for righteousness. Through faith, through faith in God's word, I'm right with God. He judges me righteous by the merits of Christ. In the Old Testament, looking forward to Christ, for us, looking back to Christ's sacrifice. But that's the righteous. And the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Why? Because he has such clever ideas? No, because he says the word of God. Because his words are God's words. He learns and he speaks God's word. And so, in a world that is dead and dying, he speaks something that is a fountain of life. But he's got to speak it. That's the thing about a mouth. You keep it closed and there is no fountain. You've got to open it and flow. And what you flow has to be that fountain of life. But the, word, the mouth of the righteous can do that. Now turn uh, to chapter 13 and verse 14. Proverbs 13, 14. 
the instruction of the wise, literally the law of the wise, the, the authoritative instruction, the instruction of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. And so here is the world uh, languishing in the snares of death. That's right where they are. If only someone could bring to them a fountain of life. If only someone had something that could give life to these dead people. Well, it's, it's our conviction if we learn God's Word that we have that. God has given us that. In the New Testament, we learn He gives us His gospel, which is His power to salvation. That's a fountain of life. And who needs that fountain of life? We'll look at the verse again. Those who are snared in death by death. That's the lost world. So I come with God's Word, with His authoritative law word, and that word gives life. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, I say. And that's a fountain of life, but I need to speak it. That's the means. I have God's Word, but my having God's Word doesn't do anybody any good. It's only if I give it to them that it might do them good. And look at uh, chapter 15, verse 7a, the first line. Proverbs 15, 7a. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not so. Well, I, I dare say they're not. But focus on line A. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge. Well, that's an interesting word. The, the word translated disperse means to scatter it, to spread it, like if you're throwing dust around or even throwing seed around. Uh, you scatter knowledge. You, in other words, you, you fling it abroad. You don't keep it in a tight little neat capsule. You, you take it and put it in your hand. Well, in this case, you put it in your mouth and you spread it abroad. Don't want to work that metaphor too hard, but uh, you spit out the seeds. No, that's, that's not going to work. Let's just go back to the figure of speech. You have the word. You spread it. You disperse it as if you were scattering seed or so much dust. You scatter it abroad. So look, this is uh, what we do. We say it. We speak God's word to people. We don't dance it. We don't paint it. We don't hope they have dreams about it. We don't cook it. We don't emote it. We speak it. We don't silently witness it because the gospel is good news and our example doesn't save anybody. We have to speak it. We have to say God's word to them. Now, see, that's really good news, isn't it? I mean, it is if you love God and you love your lost neighbor, it's good news because we don't need huge fancy instruments that we can't afford. We don't need training that we don't have the time for. We don't need specialized things. We just need God's word. It's a word. We know it. We learn it. We say it with our mouths. You don't need tanks. You don't need jets. You don't need lasers. You don't need angels' wings. You just need to know God's word. You need to have a converted heart filled with God's Word and a mouth that's willing to speak it. That's all it takes. One of the stupidest things ever said and the wrongest and the most harmful things, one of the, uh, despite its seeming profundity, is that the Gospel is caught, not taught. No, it's not. Oh, I didn't mean to rhyme. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's not. What does Gospel mean? It means good news. You don't catch news. Somebody tells you it, you learn it, you hear it, and you believe it or you don't. That's the gospel. It is taught, not caught. And, and yes, we should back it up with an example, with a life that shows we believe it, but that example is not going to save people. 
It's the gospel by which God saves people. So don't make this any more complicated than it is. This isn't teaching a a, a seminary course or a graduate course. It's not writing a discourse. It's not writing an article. It's not necessarily writing anything. It's just saying God's word. That very simply is the method. You say it. Can you say stuff? Yes, you can say stuff. Can we say the gospel? Well, that's what an overcomer does if he's carrying out Christ's mandate. He says the gospel. He speaks it. He says it. So that's it simply stated. Let's look at it narrated. In other words, look at a story that tells it. You guys will swear that Phil and I are in collusion the way that Sunday school and the sermons dovetail, but we're not. Just got the same textbook. So number one, number two, then the uh, method narrated. You've got to wonder, how did a beat-up, motley little band of slow learners ever get the word out? How did a beat-up, motley little band of slow learners in the uh, Middle East ever get the gospel to Houston, Texas? <laughs> how, did, how did they ever get it out of the first century? Let's ask that question. How did they ever get it out of the first decade? Let's ask that question. Let alone until this day, let alone throughout the world. Well, how did they do that? Let's see what happened. We're going to see, see first how it happened by looking at what happened. Letter A. And let's turn there together. Turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. We're just simply going to trace a series of verses that will show us what happened. So Acts 2.41 is the first. You know what happens. The first believers are given the gift of speaking in languages they'd not learned, and that attracts a crowd. And Peter preaches Jesus to the crowd, and they say, what do we do? And and like the mandate, Peter tells them to uh, be baptized, to, to signal their faith, to repent, be baptized. And so we read in verse 41 of chapter 2, so then those who had received his word were baptized, so faith and then baptism, And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Not a bad meeting, all told. Not a bad evangelistic meeting. 3,000 converts, we read. So that's the start, but it keeps on. Turn to chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men, and that's, that's specifically males, so not counting women, the number of men came to be about 5,000. So these are, well, these are people taught by Jesus, but they aren't formally educated in the eyes of the world. They just tell the truth about Jesus with the Holy Spirit leading them, and, and the number rises to 5,000. Now, look at chapter 5, verse 14. This trend continues. And more than ever, believers in the Lord, those believing in the Lord, were added to their number multitudes of men and women. Well, he's not counting here. He's just telling us that there are huge crowds of them being added to the Lord. But this is continuing to grow, continuing to grow. And he notes this again in the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 7. Acts 6, verse 7, where we read, And the word of God kept on spreading, 
And the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Well, that's remarkable. The priests had been so hardened, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, and yet some are being converted here. But if the Word of God keeps spreading, then who's spreading it? We're going to look at that more closely later, but it can't be just the disciples. How, how does it spread? How does something spread? How does news spread? Especially without TV or internet, how does news spread? Exactly right. Word of mouth. Word of mouth by specialists, specially trained academics, church office holders, just people, just believers going out and using their mouth with the fountain of life and spreading the word of God, saying it. And the word of God is spreading and believers are being multiplied as the word of God spreads. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace, enjoy it while it lasts, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it continued to multiply. So there are more and more new believers being one. Chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Acts 12.24, continued growth, continued multiplication. We'll return to this later, but just note this process, and it continues. Chapter 16, verse 5, Acts 16, verse 5, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were abounding in number daily. People converting and turning to Christ daily. Just a pause been here 10 years. How many people have we seen converted in the ministry of this church? I just at this point just asked the question. They were seeing people converted daily. Chapter 19, verse 20. Chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Interesting Greek word, showing strength, being stronger than the world's opposition. It was growing mightily and prevailing. And how does the book end? You just turn to the last chapter in the book, and this is just, I mean, it's, it's very bittersweet, it's very ironic, it's very instructive. What is Paul's condition at the end of the book? Well, he's under arrest. Ah, so I guess all is lost, right? If Paul's under arrest, I guess that's the end of Christianity. Well, but look at verses 30 and 31. He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence unhindered. Because it didn't require his body moving around, it required the word of God. And that he gave out. And we know also Paul used his jail time to write eternal letters that still speak to us today, still minister today. And that's how Acts ends. It ends with the word of God still being spread and still being proclaimed. So you've seen it now, how it happened. It happened by apostles, yes, and deacons, yes, and by regular believers telling the Word of God. And the Word of God spread, and converts, converts were added regularly. So we've seen that. Now let's think, letter B, let's think, and look a little more closely, why and how did it happen? We've touched on that, but I want to focus on a little more closely. Why and how did it happen, letter B? 
Well, you know the apostles preached. You know that Peter preached. You know that Paul preached. You know that uh, Stephen, who I take to be a deacon, preached. You know Philip the evangelist preached. Okay. Uh, But you know also and largely simple garden variety Christians preached. Just plain old Christians preached. Look at Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Now Saul, that's Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him, that's Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. And he later said that he he saw people done to death. So, uh, well, that's a pretty grim little chunk of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, everything looks bad in this. Stephen's just preached a great sermon, and, and he's killed. And Saul totally agrees, and Saul is very empowered to be part of a huge persecution that that bursts out and scatters people from Jerusalem. So just when you see the church growing in Jerusalem, it's all scattered. There goes the consolidation of power. There goes their base. Uh, They're forced out of their familiar territory under persecution. I guess that's the end of the church, isn't it? Oh, but there's verse 4. What happens in verse 4? Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. Maybe the world's idea didn't work out so well for them, huh? Because the mandate is not make disciples of all nations when conditions seem optimal. It's not make disciples of all nations when you're popular with them, when you're liked, when you're legal even, when the law protects you even. Those are not conditions for fulfilling his mandate, are they? It's just make disciples. He doesn't say make disciples when it's a smooth road and when you're applauded and thanked for it. He just says do it. And in fact, what we see here is, well, indeed, they got, they got resistance. They got heavy resistance. And friend, if, if they had buckled under that resistance, then you would be lost today and I'd be lost today. The word never would have gotten out. But they didn't. They said, okay, so we're going to do the same thing wherever we go, right? Right, that's exactly what we're going to do. Same thing. And so those who were scattered, now who are the ones who were scattered? Well, they're expressly not who. Who stayed in Jerusalem? The apostles. So they're not the specialists. So who's scattered? You and me, us, just plain people, believers. They're scattered. And they're the ones who go proclaiming the gospel. Literally, the Greek says, gospelizing the word, evangelizing the world, word, preaching the word is good news. Everywhere they go, they, they spread. And so that's how we read the other verses about the word of God keeps growing and converts keep being added. How did that happen? Everywhere believers went, they told people about Jesus. They just, they just told them. They weren't paid to do it, weren't made to do it, they weren't forced to do it. They just did it because they believed. They actually believed. Imagine that. And so they spoke what they believed like people do. They spoke what they were enthusiastic about, like people do. They spoke what really lit them up, like people do. What they really love, what means the most to them, like people do. And it turns out what means the most to them is it's the gospel. It's Jesus. So yeah, they talk about Jesus wherever they go. 
That's instructive, isn't it? Look at chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. Acts 11, 19 through 21. So then those who were scattered, boy, I see that word again and again, scattered, scattered, scattered. I'm going to return to that in a second. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So these people are scattered, and they're, not, they're uprooted. They're not in the best of condition, and yet they preach the good news of Jesus Christ. They evangelize, speaking of Jesus, because Jesus is the center of the gospel. And what's that word we see again and again? We see scattered. Scatter, scatter, scatter. Do you remember Proverbs 15, 7 that says the the lips of the wise disperse? They scatter knowledge. So, and what they scatter is a fountain of life. So here the people of God are scattered and they've got the gospel of Christ and those scattered people speak it wherever they go. And that's how the gospel spreads. By scattered people scattering the word of God. God scattered his people and his people scattered the gospel. Like a sower with a sack full of seed. Throw, throw, throw. That's what God's people did. Theologian and evangelist Michael Green in a book called Evangelism in the Early Church says this. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth it. It's a good, it's a good word. He says Christianity was from its inception a lay movement. Do you know what that means? Not, not people lying around. Uh, lay, I guess it wasn't that. <laughs> a lay movement means it didn't depend on experts and clergy. It didn't depend on a priestly caste. It just was plain people, just regular people like, like us. Well, some of you were special, but those of us who were plain. It was uh, a lay movement, and so it continued for a remarkably long time. It was laymen and amateur missionaries who traveled along the coastal plain to Phoenicia and over the Sea to Cyprus, or struck up north to Antioch. They were evangelists as much as any apostle was, Green writes. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere, spreading the good news, which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must have been the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and in wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread, notably among the lower classes, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1. So put it all together then. Wise people spread wisdom by opening their mouths and saying what was a fountain of life, the gospel. They just said it. They said it to the people they met. Neighbors, friends, co-workers, acquaintances, passers-by. They said it. And the word is, pos- is powerful because it's God's word. They're not powerful, but the word is powerful. And they speak the word, and God uses the word because the word is filled with Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And God's Spirit uses that gospel message to save sinners by granting faith and repentance to them. So the big thing then, note well, isn't who tells the gospel. The big thing is telling the gospel. You don't need a degree or a church office or special training. You just need to love God and man. You need to know Jesus and the gospel. You need to open your mouth and say it to people. And then God does His work. That's where our responsibility ends. And that's where the power of God can begin. So, we have seen, we've thought. Now let's reflect over what we have seen and thought about. Let's reflect. And I'm going to uh, face the elephant in this half-empty room. I I guess about half-empty if we were to defrag, um, you know. If we were to defrag this disc and make everybody sit by each other, I guess the room would be about half empty. So what is the elephant in this half empty room? It's why don't we see this happening here? We've read it throughout the book of Acts. Believers added daily. Thousands constantly being added to the Lord, but we don't see it here. I think if you're concerned and involved at all, you've got to ask that question. I haven't I haven't uncovered some dirty little secret. You've got to wonder that. You've got to wonder why isn't it happening here? We don't see converts added daily. I, I'm not, how many have we seen in the last two, 10 years? I asked that question. What do we mostly see? We just mostly see transfers. And I thank God for them. Very happy for them. Pe- people who are going to one church who start coming to our church, whether because of a move or something else. But not converts. They're people who are already Christians. How many people are one to the Lord in our ministry by people telling them others about the gospel or by hearing the gospel preached in our meetings? Why is that? I'm going to suggest three reasons, and they might overlap. Three reasons why it might be the case that we're not seeing it. I think it's undeniable that we're not seeing it. I'm just asking why. Why? Three possible reasons to my mind. One possible reason, and it's a very possible reason, is God may simply be judging our generation by withholding his hand. God may simply be judging our generation. That's the first of three. And a scripture you could note down next to that is Matthew 11, 25 and 26, where Jesus and the apostles have preached and preached and preached, and most of the cities don't repent. And Jesus at that time said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. That's what he sees in their failure to repent, that God hid the things of the gospel from them. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And in the chapters that come, he talks about God's judgment on on that generation, that generation, that generation. So it may very well be, and, and, and who deserves it more? than our generation. I mean, honestly, who deserves it more? No other nation in the history of the planet has had freer access to the Word of God than we do. Freer access and freer, more freedom to believe it, preach it, and practice it than we have. And what have we done with that? Come to a place where people stand naked in front of a mirror and don't know the significance of what they see. They've gone so far from their Creator and so far into insanity and darkness and lostness because of their proud insistence that it's working just great. This whole thing about rebelling against God is just going fine. This is fine. That's the world's mantra. And so, yeah, God could be judging our generation. That's a possibility. Second possibility, God may be about to break forth in powerful revival. Often it's very dark before light breaks out. 
So that is a second possibility. I mean, who is one of the worst kings in, in Judah's history? Ahaz. Ahaz, horrible king. Well, maybe it's because he didn't have very good preaching. Oh, I don't know, Isaiah. You think Isaiah is a pretty good preacher? Let's say Isaiah is a pretty good preacher. He didn't listen to Isaiah. He's a horrible preacher. Who followed him? Hezekiah. Huge revival. Who's another horrible king of Israel? Manasseh. Manasseh was a demonic, awful king. He repented in his later days, but still, his, his kingship had been appalling. And he was followed for, what, a two-year reign, I think, by Ammon. So, horrible, horrible kings. And who followed Ammon? Josiah. Huge revival. Huge revival under Josiah. Uh, and so here in uh, the New Testament, we see Israel saying, away with this one. Away with him. Crucify him. They turn their back on Jesus. And what do we just read? Thousands converting. People being added. Yes, even though the nation was under judgment. Yes, still, people were brought to the Lord by the thousands. So God may be about to break forth. And, and I pray that he does. And I would urge you to pray that he does. And you say, well, that's two. What's the third possibility? Well, you probably could guess it. Third possibility is just, well, let me ask. Are we spreading the word? Is each one of us who regularly attend here telling people regularly about Jesus? Uh, are we sowing lots of seed, lots and lots of seed, like we saw the early church doing? Uh, just uh, gossiping the gospel, chatting, spreading. A, a word here, a sentence there, a 10-minute chat in the other place, a book given, a tract given, a sermon, link sent, whatever. All forms of outreach with the Word of God, and, and there's a dozen others. So are, are we doing that? So if we are doing that, and it's true that all of us are diligently evangelizing personally, if that's true and we're not seeing the conversions happen, well, then it's perfectly appropriate for us to wait on God and to pray and ask Him to move His hand and, in mercy and to begin giving conversions and repentance and to wait trustingly and, and to keep laboring. But I tell you, friend, and I tell you as a friend, if we're not doing that, then to say, oh, well, I just trust God's sovereign will. That's abominable. That's abominable. It, what would you think of a father whose family was starving and he doesn't get a job and doesn't work? And you say, why? What's the matter with you? And he says, oh, I'm trusting God to provide. Would you think, my, what a godly man. <laughs> or would you think things that probably you don't want to hear coming from the pulpit? Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd think that. You would not think well of him. What do, you th what do you think if you saw a student getting straight F's, lazy, playing video games all day or whatever, whatever, reading books, whatever, fishing, and you ask him, what's your plan here? And he says, I'm just trusting God to provide. What do you think? What a godly young man. How would you think? You sluggard. I have a few verses to read to you. And what would you say to a church that says, well, we're proud that we're small. It's, we're pure. We're pure, not like the huge churches that preach a false gospel, but all of us are keeping our Gospels tightly bottled up and we don't personally evangelize. Would that be godly? Or would that be abominable and shameful? Well, we need to ask ourselves. We need to search our hearts. And this is what the Word of God takes us to because what John says overcomes the world is our faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Our faith rests on God's Word. God's Word is the one weapon we have to move forward and the one thing we have to give the world. And that's the Word of God. It is His power to salvation. So 
do we give it? Remember, we've said again and again in this series, being an overcomer doesn't mean just standing pat. It means advancing. And we've seen Jesus calls us to advance by making disciples. And the core of how we make disciples is his word, his gospel, telling them about that Christ who died and was buried, who rose and ascended, and who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and who is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him and through him alone. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the precious message God has given us. God forbid we keep it to ourselves. And if we do, don't wonder if we don't see converts. Why would they convert if they haven't heard? How can they call on him who they don't believe in? And how can they believe without a preacher? So, I close with a few wrap-up questions and answers. The world is seeking what? It's seeking itself, its own heart. An overcomer seeks what? He seeks Christ. He seeks the things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. What is the world standing on? It's standing on nothing. It's standing in midair. It's falling and doesn't even know it. What do we stand on? Well, we stand in God's strength on God's word. That's what an overcomer does. And the world insists it has all the answers and it's doing great. What am I called to do? Tell it the truth of God. Tear down strongholds and bring out the Lord Jesus Christ who saves sinners. The world insists I don't have a chance. I'm a loser. I'm going to fail. But what does God say I am? An overcomer. Who is he who overcomes but he who believes that Jesus is the Christ? God says we're overcomers. So where should I speak the gospel of God and of Christ? Well, that depends. What territory belongs to Jesus? All of it. Where should I speak it then? Everywhere I go. Is where does Jesus go with me when I go to speak his word? All, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word and your truth. And indeed, we do experience that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that you'll be glorified by laying this word to our hearts, uh, to fruit, to your glory, to our blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.